Welcome everyone to Too Busy to Flush. I'm JR. I'm Molly. And this is episode 32, I think. Or episode 32. Uh, if um, if that's not the case, then I'll... Um, I'll look I'll it up on Instagram really quickly. Edit that out. Um, whoops. You have a picture of me sleeping. On Instagram? Yeah. No, that's Lily. I posted it. Episode one was posted on Instagram on January 15th. Mm-hmm. And on the First picture... of the year. I think it was kind of a first of the year plan. And the reason I say that, that it's important, is we're almost through the whole first year of doing Dead, rec- uh, dead Reckoning, of doing Too Busy to Flush. The interesting thing is we could not keep it consistently once a week like we originally tried once um, COVID ended. We fell out of rhythm, then we got into a rhythm, and then fell out of rhythm again. And it's just been busy. So uh, over the last couple of weeks, um, we have harvested, taken, and processed five elk. I have built my gym out in my garage, which I'm excited about. And... That's roughly about it, but you start. You've been trying to dive back into some sort of similar to school. We started it back up at judo, um, and we've we're trying to go to small group. As difficult as that. When can our be. kids are healthy. Yeah, yeah. So far, we're all healthy. Ooh, ski patrol. Ski patrols um, started training. I think the first. Gosh, I think they open next week. They do. They open on Friday, a week from today. And wild. So. Um, aside from, you know, that we've, we're almost making it through a whole first year of the show. Do you have any reflections on... Well, we've averaged more than every other week. Yes. If we're on 32, if we do two more, that will be like three-fifths, six-tenths. Boy, you're like 60%. your dad. 60%. <laughs> 60%. No, I, I was actually thinking we had... Titus just started adding and subtracting fractions and mm-hmm. learning that you can add and subtract common denominators, um, but he hasn't learned how to convert or reduce fractions yet. And I remember getting a lot of satisfaction out of doing that in school, and I feel like he probably won't because he doesn't love math quite like I do slash did. So it'll be interesting to see if he... How he does with the fractions. This is also the first time sitting in my studio in three weeks for me, I think, again. Yeah, you have not. I kind of knew that it was going to be a little bit busy. Well, and I've also been reading a lot. Um, because I, I was a little bit zoned out looking for the first episode date when you were talking about things you've been doing. But not only were you hunting, but you've now spent almost a week's worth of time Right. Cutting up what you yeah. hunted. So you've spent yeah. a huge amount of that. time. Okay. Yeah, and we've spent a huge amount Pretty of time big. up there. Yeah, that's a lot of it takes we figured it takes for a full size cow elk, it's about five hours of straight work. Um from And that's three people working. That's three people from having it from hanging in the garage, getting it skinned, getting it boned, getting it processed into steaks, burger. So we chunk it up, all the stuff that we don't cut for steaks or roasts, we cut into burger. And that means, you know, you've got to take all the, all the soft tissue that you don't want. That's part of the muscle, the silver skin, tendons, all that kind of thing. You've got to remove all that. Anything that's bloodshot, you don't really want that in there. What's bloodshot? Bloodshot is, you know, if they're, if they had a bruise, for instance, or if there's uh, vascular, um, vascular structures in certain parts of the meat. So when I cut out the roasts, for instance, it's pretty cool. When I cut out the roasts out of the out of the back of the rear leg, um, there's a whole, I mean, it's a lot of meat right there. But you basically start splitting it apart because no muscle group is all interconnected. They're all interconnected muscle groups. So you kind of mm-hmm. break them apart by groups. But right through, almost dead center, is some uh, blood vessels. And you can see them; they're they're pretty big. Um, I don't; they're not arterial blood vessels, but so they're some of the main, the main feeds. And so you get some of those vascular structures there that you oh. want to, you want to take out. Um, so you know, things like that. Um, and then once you do that, it's all in neat little chunks. We we cut our elk because elk is insanely; it's all lean. 
and it doesn't stick together if you try to cook burgers or something out of it, we'll cut it with 15% beef fat. So I tend to use all of my leftover brisket fat for the year when I throw parties um, for this purpose. And unfortunately, I only had about six, seven pounds of brisket fat this year because I didn't throw any parties. Mm -hmm. So we grind it twice, run it through the grinder. We got a big commercial grinder with like a three-inch throat on it. And um, once that's all done, then we weigh it out in either one-pound packages or two-pound packages. And by the way, it's not just this time. It wasn't just three grown men processing. It was Titus. Mm -hmm who is now in his second year pretty much single-handedly running the meat grinder. And Elise actually started doing some knife cutting this year, too. So she started working on a little bit of process. What? Little bit of you had our five-year-old? No, I didn't. No, she was hanging out. Titus was gone. No, no, no. And yeah. she was standing there, and I didn't realize. I thought she was, because she'd been playing with meat all day. Yeah. She'd been I slapping it and playing with it and going, ew, you know, giggling. And then I look over, and she's like, Dad, how does this look? And I'm like, oh, that's, you know, I'm not... I'm kind of focused on what I'm doing <laughs> and what she'd been doing is she'd been taking one of the knives and cutting off all of the, all of the stuff we don't want. And I was like, Oh, okay. You're there. All right, cool. Problem is Titus kind of feels ownership over all that. So it's like none of his sisters can help. So we're, we got to work through that next year, but yes. Um, yeah. So then once we, we get it all weighed out, we, we vacuum seal it into one pound or two pound bags and uh, that's the process, and one full elk takes about five hours. So we've spent four day, most of, most of four days this week doing it. And then last week, I really felt like I needed to get my gym built so I could start working out again now that my knee is feeling way better. Um, and so I spent some time doing that. And I have another house project for you. You want me to do something over our hood in the kitchen? I do. So that's on the to-do list. And I have took a deep, deep dive, you guys, into critical social justice and critical race theory um, in addition to... A host of other theological matters that seem to be um, prominent right now in our particular World. circle. So I spent that was a day, probably working through that. But. Yes, and now you're way ahead of me on it, and I will never have time to do all of that reading and catch up. It, you know, you don't have to. There's an article. Um, I can link it in the show notes. There's an article called. Um, the critical, I think it's critical social, uh, critical social justice's Jewish problem or something like that. It's written by James Lindsay. And while you don't have to read the whole article, it is probably, I mean, it's good to read the whole article. It's a long article. The first section and maybe two paragraphs into the second section it is probably the most concise, clear description of what critical social justice and its evil twin sister as the author calls it, critical race theory, is. Um, now, what it doesn't do, and what I've not found anybody really has done well so far, um, is really um, write out a concise biblical response to some of the major points of critical race theory. Um, people have talked about it. Carl Ellis has talked about it. One of your classmates, Molly, Mark Robinson, was on the Truth Exchange podcast, and he briefly touched on it. Um, Tim Keller basically wrote a book on it. And in what seems to be classic Tim Keller fashion these days, he's he didn't write any, he's kind of shifty. Like, he doesn't write anything unbiblical. Like, nothing I'm reading is going, well, that's not biblical. But he never actually takes a, like a, like a, stance on something and it's it's really kind of weird like it just it gives me the heebie-jeebies a little bit like dude where are you land on this because you're you're kind of positioning yourself to not really land anywhere and you know it's so it's it's kind of odd so i mean nothing he said was um, but he never really there was nothing concise about what he said it was very very wordy very deep four articles long and just went on and on and on and on and i'm like uh um, so nobody's really done that. I've thought about sitting down and doing that, but I don't know that I'm that motivated. <laughs> I'm not a, don't fancy myself a scholar. I enjoy it, but. Why, cool. why is that so important right now? Right now? Um, well, what's happening there's a couple of things going on. The first one is a lot of 
the mainstream narrative uh, driving the race riots, uh, racial issues, and racial relationships is based on critical race theory. Which is what? Critical race theory is essentially um, narrows down everything race-related to two structures, a dominant structure and an oppressed structure. And historically, um, the dominant structure has been European whites, Caucasian people. Uh, and the oppressed structure is the blacks or a minority therein. Now, unfortunately for critical race theory is they, they essentially eliminate all other races and everything else and lump everything into black versus white. Yeah, apparently in Washington state now... If you're Asian, you're considered mm. white. You're considered part of the dominant culture. So if you take part of the culture, if you take part of systems of that culture, that is that is white privilege. That is what it means to uh, be white. That is a white culture. Now, and I would add in, so critical race theory is a relatively new thing, but critical right. theory is... Critical theory has been around for a while. Critical theory has been around a long time, and it looks at relationships in society strictly in terms of power power right and so um i think that's that's where it's inherently unbiblical just starting from the very get-go you are saying that that the world exists on a teeter-totter and if a group that is different and again like the fact that that a certain swath of our country has been feeding into identity politics it's just like set the stage for right. critical race theory, because people see themselves in terms of these boiled down, superficial in a lot of ways, identities, ah, whether yeah. it's that they're white, whether it's that they're female. And in critical theory, in general, um, you know, the, the power imbalance, you, as Ali Stuckey has said, you kind of get points based on how many different oppressed classes you fit into. Um, and so I get a point because I'm female. You get no points. Because I'm white male. Because you're a white male. Well, you know, you're a white Christian yeah. male. Yeah. Which um, is like, I'm getting so negative you, points Yeah, you're point. in negative points right now. <laughs> but she also points out that my I lose points because I'm Christian. So my voice right. as an oppressed person doesn't count because my worldview cancels out my sense of oppression. Yeah. So what happens is you have this theory that reduces everything to these to these essentially two structures. And it's how, I mean, it explains how, you know, we have, it explains how one side is, the side that adheres to this is saying, we have systemic racism and everything. It makes sense when you think about it from just that parallel. Because when you wear systemic racism glasses, you can't not see systemic well, racism. Well, yeah, and if everything everywhere. is lumped, if everything is lumped into a power structure, non-power structure, and you look at the whole world going, well, our civil government, our our justice systems, our police forces, our workplace, it's all set up by so therefore, and it's also how they can get away with calling some blacks racist. Or some blacks part of white culture, or all these other minorities, the Asians part of white culture, because you're you you're you're reduced, you're reduced to simply a power structure. You're which, actually in it, it, you're actually weirdly reduced more to your ideology than to uh, your to your um, your identity. Under these, uh, the the irony is, do you know who wrote the book White Fragility? She's white. Mm -hmm. the, the irony of her getting millions and millions of dollars and coming in and her her worldview is that being white is inherently bad and so the best i mean that's the other thing but that's how white people can become black see you can yeah. become so anyway not to digress on the on some of this stuff uh not to no, digress see, too much, here's but... the thing i don't think it's a digression because first of all i think that the church I'm just is digressing not... from my point, but okay. No. Well, I don't. I mean, <laughs> my point was why does it? Why does all of this matter? And all why this, is it important right. to get into? And that's kind of where I was heading. All of this matters because, and here's what nobody's really concisely said, but people have touched on throughout a variety of things, is that number one, critical race theory denies the imago dei, the image of God built into whole, into humanity. 
it denies who we are. It simply limits us to, it reduces our humanity to power structures. There's nothing else. There's nothing else at play. It's not even that nuanced. I mean, I wish I could say it was that nuanced. It's not. There's nothing else there. It's either a oppression culture or a domination culture. Secondly, uh, it denies doctrinal sin. It does not take into account the fact that the human heart is inherently sinful and, you know, inherently judgmental, which I would say a root sin of racism is self-righteousness. We're looking and to make ourselves better than someone else. The human heart is also that. inherently tribal, that right. we do like people who look like us. And feel mm-hmm. safer and more comfortable with people who Correct. look slash talk slash think like us, which mm-hmm. I think is actually more significant in our culture right, right now. That I feel safer with people who think like I do than with people yeah. who look like I do. And then, uh, and and the third point is that it denies sanctification. There's no way out of it. Once you're racist, you're racist. There's no growth there. You can't get out of it. It's impossible. Um, I wouldn't say, yeah. I I wouldn't say sanctification. I would say. Like there's a step that you're missing in there in that it denies the reality of what Christ accomplished on the cross. Right. Which, you know, so I'm actually, as you were talking, um, so in it, the seminary that I went to, one of the distinguishing marks of that seminary was what is called biblical theology, which is tracing patterns and themes throughout all of the different phases in history. So you would look at, say, like we would write papers for Old Testament class on, say, um, the theme of the biblical theological theme of water or of covering with animal skins. And so you would look at where water was in the creation narrative, how water symbolizes the fall or is, you know, like, for example, in Isaiah, in the Psalms, water is generally chaos. It's a sign of um, God lack of God's control, God not having tamed a particular part of creation. So like the Jonah narrative, the water is scary. Um, I was thinking about a biblical theological response to critical race theory, as you're saying, so, so that denies the Imago Dei, that would be Genesis. Like the very beginning, it denies the truth of the fact that God placed his image equally in male and female and in every person who then descended from Adam and Eve. And then it denies the reality of the fall, moving on to Genesis 3, which is that we all have, just as you said, sin in our hearts. And the sin in our hearts, not the sin in our hearts can create problematic structures. But the problematic structure is not the root problem. And you can't solve a problematic structure without addressing the sin in people's hearts. Although you would also argue, like looking at, as we did yesterday in First Peter and Romans 13, civil government exists because to restrain human sin right. in a lot of ways. Right. Um, and then at the end of Genesis 3, God promises hope. And then... You look at, I think the the next most significant thing that I would fast forward to in the biblical narrative would be Babel and our, our differences in color, in language are the result of human pride, right? And that was both a form of God's judgment on human pride, that he's quashing this, this project to not need God. Um, but he's also, it's a blessing because a, a human project in order to not need God is doomed for disaster for human yep. well-being. And so it was a blessing that God quashed this and sent people out into the world in smaller tribes. Um, and so we look at the way the fact that that now isn't you know is the way the world exists our different cultures are a blessing and a challenge right um and then moving forward through history you know skipping a lot of the old testament because i haven't thought about it to where else this would fit in but obviously the next really major event would be christ bringing unity 
And you see this working out. I mean, I just read the whole Acts narrative for my Bible reading challenge. And there's so many significant things in there about like God's revelation to Peter. And there's no, and then I read Colossians this morning. I kept reading parts of it out loud to you. There's no longer Jew or Greek. There's no, no Jew or Gentile. And that God has demolished the dividing wall of hostility between different races. And so from here on out, up until Revelation, where every tribe, tongue, and nation is worshiping God together, and that's that's the flattening. So we have total unity amongst all of our diversity because there's one in power who should be in power because he's God and he's good and he will always wield his power well. And the rest of us do nothing but worship because we recognize, even if we, you know, I read, I sing holy, holy, holy to Elise every night and every now and then she'll be like, what is this? What's a cherubim or seraphim? And, you know, at one point she was like, casting down their golden crowns. What does that mean? And I was like, well, in some sense, it seems like humans will receive rewards for our obedience here on earth and we will, you know, there are ways in which it seems like humans will rule over the new heavens and the new earth, and I don't know exactly what that looks like, but we will consider any power derivative from God that we have in the new creation, and any reward that we have, even a golden crown, will be worthless when we're at the Lord's feet altogether. And critical race theory both denies what Christ did on the cross, as well as the progression throughout the New Testament of trying to figure out what it looks like. And then ultimately, the fact that, you know what, we want to start trying to experience heaven on earth, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so we're trying to start experiencing that here on earth and living out that reality to other people. And in contrast, we now have colleges having seminars separated, segregated (laughs) for blacks and whites because it's harmful to have them together. And I can't imagine having lived through the race riots. The civil, yeah, the civil of, rights movement of the 60s, and, only to and fast now, forward to now it's we're going And back now, there. you know, we're not drinking out of different drinking fountains, but we're going to different classrooms. Right. And it's, I mean, to me, it, it, and the problem is, critical race theory for me has an entire, um, it's an entire worldview that has its own definition of good and evil, yep. has its own definition of sin, has its own definition of of what absolves you from sin and guilt, um, that what creates righteousness and what creates sanctification. And if you start looking at it in those terms, you realize that it's, first of all, extremely hopeless. And second of all, it's irreconcilable with the true gospel. Right. And so I think that what's really... what where it's sneaking into the church is, and by the church, I mean churches across America, as I scan social media, where it's sneaking in is because, first of all, nobody wants to be racist. I mean, genuinely, I think very few people, except for maybe the KKK, wants to actually, like, I don't desire to be racist deep in my heart. And I realize that I hold prejudices towards certain people groups that I have had negative experiences with or have grown up with stereotypes against. And I realize that that's true for a lot of people. Um, But I think most people, at least, especially in our generation, are like, I, I want to call people out, but that's not enough with CRT. Um, and so... No, you have to be... So you have to do... You have the, to be an advocate. You have to move through the progression of recognizing that you're yeah, part you have of to the actively be an anti-racist. And in order to kind of... Yeah, you have to actively... And be actively yeah. trying to divest yourself of your whiteness, which then again denies <clears throat> right. that you, in God's sovereignty and wisdom, were created with who you are, to be who you right. are. And... Sanctification does not involve trying to be less of who you are. Um, and so I think I think it's sneaking into the church because it's using 
as Colossians said, it's it has an appearance of godliness because it's using good language. And I mm-hmm. think where Keller's article, what I read of it anyway, is helpful is in defining your terms because justice is different. The word justice has a different meaning in the Bible than in critical race theory or even in normal parlance in America today. And so being careful to define our, define our terms, sort of like when you're interacting with a Jehovah's Witness, like, you you know, when they come to your door, like, we we may be using the same words that God loves me and Jesus loves me, but they actually mean different things. Right. Yeah, I mean, Keller, at the end of his, you didn't read his last article, but at the end of the last article, he, he kind of goes into the, to his kind of pseudo-biblical response, but he left the door open for it. That's the thing. Like in all of us, he leaves the door open for things, which you can take two ways. You know, you can take as in, oh, well, hmm, he's he's heading down the wrong path. Or you can take it as, you know, um, well, that's it's fair. He's maybe he's letting us kind of work out the truth for ourselves sort of thing. But that, you know, somebody pointed out to me uh, today that he's like, well, that's precisely the problem. He shouldn't be leaving the door open. I don't, I don't know where I stand on that. But the the final and going back to two things, one, um, how and why it's creeping into the church. And probably the biggest issue that I see is more of a, a zoom out macro thing from what you're talking about. And you touched on it is the fact that it, it reorients the Christian, the new Christian identity, the new kingdom identity of who we are. Mm-hmm. And this has been something that's not limited to critical race theory. This is something that has been you know, a staple of Christian liberalism for decades and decades and decades. And and what it is, it's saying that X is my identity versus now that I'm a new Christian in a new church, my identity is first and foremost as part of the body of Christ. And then we I don't a Christian, add a, a modifier no, to no being modifier in Christ there. or to being Christian. So Christian race, so critical race theory says, no, your identity is either, you're either part of the white culture or the black culture, full stop, or the, the dominant or the oppressed culture, full stop. And there's no, there's no identity. It places an anthropological view of who we are over that, over that of Christ. And it should be the other way around. What does Christ say in the midst of this? And we see that in a couple areas. We see that, uh, in, um, you know, I did a documentary a few years ago called Half Devil, Half Child. You can still go watch it on Amazon if you want. We went to Bangladesh where there was a movement that was saying, um, you can be a Christian, but you can still be Muslim. You can follow Jesus, but you can still be Muslim. And what it was is it was denying the whole, we are called out of darkness and into light. We are, we have forsaken our, our former selves. You know, we've taken off the old self and put on the new self. It's forsaking all of that. It's saying you can maintain your old lifestyle, your old culture and identify there, but you can follow Jesus in this. And and we're moving that same way in the big issue right now that um, is also, you know, injecting itself into a lot of churches. In fact, apparently it's, you know, the our denomination, the PCA is on the verge of a split over this, or at least heading that direction is with um, LGBTQ plus identities, you know, calling yourself a gay Christian. Do you use that modifier? You modify yourself with your sin. You identify yourself with sin. You're not fully forsaking who you once were. We're always going to have besetting, lingering sins, but it's not how we identify ourselves in the new, you know, under Christ's, Christ's banner. Mm-hmm. He, he specifically tells us that in, in the Bible. So that to me is the bigger issue. And those are, that's a staple of, you know, Christian liberalism through, you know, kind of through the last modern history that I've been aware of. Um, and so that's where I think, you know, cri- uh, critical race theory kind of falls apart. You know, we've, and from everything that I have seen, you know, our own local church has brought in somebody who, who apparently adheres to most of this stuff, which is cause for concern for me, you know? And so we're working through kind of that. Where do we stand on it? You know, how do we address it? What's, you know, what's the process there? Cause I don't really want to see that, you know, enter our sphere of influence or support even that ideology as well-meaning as we may be in trying to be inclusive. Um, Christianity's not, you know, 
on the one hand, Christianity is inclusive. On the other hand, it's not inclusive. You have to forsake your sin and turn the other way. <laughs> Send a story. So I don't know. I'm probably a hard ass, but that's okay. I'll take it. I think what's interesting about how you've been the way the things that you've been studying and reading is not only have you been studying and reading this doing a deep dive into this stuff but you're also listening to did we talk have we talked about this before i don't think we have that you're listening to bonhoeffer's bonhoeffer's biography biography by eric metaxas which i have the luther one and if the if the Bonhoeffer one is close to the Luther one, it's like two and a half inches thick. It, it's, well, it's in it's in, it's on my nightstand right now, but I'm listening to it on Audible. And Bonhoeffer's dealing with a lot of the same. He's dealing with some of the same things in in a slightly different light. His main question is, what is the church? What is the church when you have all this stuff encroaching on you? And interestingly, Nazi Germany did a did a deliberate effort to convince Christians that what they were doing was right. And it was extremely anthropological based. It was all about the Aryan race. Mm-hmm. And they placed that, but so, but they snowed churches after churches after churches after churches um, through this particular ideology and some of the rhetoric, and it was really attractive. And Bonhoeffer really pushed back against a lot of that. Um, so I'm seeing some interesting parallels between today's culture and, um, you know, and kind of some of the, some, you know, we're, we're a lot different. I'm not saying we're going down the road of, you know, white Aryan national Nazi Germany. Um, but there are just, you know, culture, nothing is new under the sun. Ecclesiastes tells us that in none of the battles we're fighting, you know, we studied my Bible study, um, went through the heresies, um, all the major heresies of the church in its, you know, known history recently. And then we finished studying first, second, and third John. And what was really apparent to me is like, you know, every, the things people talk about now as being major issues were they fought about the same stuff back then. You know, they were, they were dealing with the same Jesus is, you know, Jesus is deity or Jesus is humanity. Um, you know, the, the extent of his grace, you know, how far does it go? They're all dealing with the same stuff that we deal with now, you know, only when now we're a brand new generation, we don't pay attention to a whole lot of history. So there's nothing new under the sun. So there's some, there are some parallels there and I'm specifically, you know, I'm specifically, um, hoping that Metaxas in the biography you know, teases out some of Bonhoeffer's life in the midst of when do you defy civil government? Because obviously that's been a big issue for a lot of churches right now with COVID. They're wondering, do we not wear masks? Do we wear masks? Um, John MacArthur's church is saying you can't force us not to meet, you know, so they're taking a legal stance there. Um, There's a lot of confusion I think between Christianity and the constitution, um, those are really well blended. You know, our, our Christianity has been so tied to the American political, you know, the American constitution, the way our government was set up, at least here's, I don't know if we have any international leaders, at least the way it's here in America, it's been so tied to that, that there's a, there's a division there. And one thing I enjoyed about Keller's last article was he, talked about a whole different economic system in the Old Testament. It's like, whoa, it's neither socialist nor is it a true republic. It's an amalgamation of the two. But no government, we know this, no government will ever be perfect when you have the corrupt heart of man at its head. Mm-hmm. You know, we'll never have a perfect form of government. Um, so I see a lot of parallels there, like just a lot of... Um, and so I'm curious to see what Bonhoeffer, when and how did he justify his actions to uh, to resist his civil authority? And we spent two small groups now discussing this very fact. And just of, spinning our wheels. Out of First Peter. There's no, there's, you know, there's no, uh, there's no right or wrong. It's, it's. I mean, there's a right or wrong, but there's no like... There's a big gray area in between yeah, right Yeah, that's what I'm trying to say. I think what's most interesting 
to me in a lot of this is the direction that we took after listening to Rod Dreher's interview about his book, Live Not By Lies, where he, Rod Dreher, interviewed for this book people who had remained Christian under communist regimes in Europe and Russia um, and in the last century. So, like, these are people who he actually went over to, I mean, I think he talks about spending a meal, I don't know if it was Christmas mm-hmm. or Easter or what, in Moscow with a family, and his whole driving point towards the end of the interview was, so now what? And for me, the interesting premise is in a culture where we're raising our kids, where our Christianity is going to be increasingly looked down upon because we are not conforming, we're not accepting this power dichotomy, and therefore we're not living according to the standards of righteousness that people who believe this power dichotomy defines the world live by. And so we're choosing a different form, a a different standard for righteousness, and we're trying to train our children to live according to a different standard of righteousness that we believe is one that God designed and, or that God uses. And so our children are going to be increasingly live in a culture that's hostile to their perception of righteousness, God willing, if they choose to live according to their faith. And then even their children, I think it's going to be even farther out unless there's some sort of crazy awakening, great awakening of a, on a scale that's way bigger than the first and second Great Awakenings in America. Um, but so Dreyer, the whole question for him is, how do you disciple your families? And how do you just form tight-knit communities where you're supported and you're discipled? And one of the really interesting points for me in that interview, which it was him, the specific interview I'm talking about, I'm sure since he's promoting a new book, he's done these types of interviews all over the place. But the one we listened to was with Ali Stuckey. And he points out that the Christianity that you and I grew up in, so of like 90s youth group era, what was the 90s youth group game (laughs) that I was telling you about the other day? Can you even remember? Um, I don't know. Our kids was it the something. Coke game where everybody drinks the same stuff and somebody has to swallow it or whatever? No, no, it wasn't that. But that one's definitely happened. We also did one where... The, you were blind. You had to come out and pretend to be... It was it was charades. Charades, yeah. And they would tell the people to do... To like act out skiing or, you know, riding a bike. And then they would tell the crowd they're acting out how they go poop. Um, which our kids thought was hysterical because our kids are five, seven, five, eight, nine. And 90s youth group was the worst. I also did. We also what did. Idea? One? What, how did somebody needs to do a documentary on that or write a book? I, how did I feel like that's probably what happened. Yeah. Um, I'm sure there are books about it. We also did one where they would put girls on boys' shoulders and put an egg on their head with yep. a nylon. You did yep. that one? Dump, that yep. was not unique. That's, no, that was How not did unique. they even pass these games around? There was no internet then. Know. How did they I all learn these youth things? Con- youth conferences. It must have been a book. Somebody was writing great Somebody books writing that everybody... Somebody was writing a book with bad games in it. Anyway, for those of you who did not participate in this because you were blessed, hashtag blessed, oh, there was I an egg on the I men's... I refused to play There was an games. egg on the boy's head that was held on by a nylon, and the girls had to protect the egg on the boy's shoulders that they were on while using a rolled-up newspaper to try to smash the egg on other people's heads. So weird and wrong. Anyway, (laughs) that culture gave us absolutely no sense that what we were doing was worth dying for. And what, what Dreyer says is in order to survive, for your faith to survive the sort of intense persecution that a communist regime and whatever's coming in America will probably look different, but he's looking back, believing that there are lessons to be learned from people who've lived through this, and he's saying, we need to form communities of discipleship, begin with families, but bigger than that, Mm -hmm. where we're teaching 
each other and our young ones that this is a faith worth dying for. I feel like, you know, you, well, first that is a, uh, that brings up a great point, which is a great way to like segue into sort of a conclusion for this whole episode. Um, the two other things I've been listening to, one was an interview with Dr. Carl Ellis on a side A and side B theology, which has nothing to do with LGBTQ plus issues. Um, if you've heard anything in that, in that world. Um, but he was saying, look, he's like, I'm, I'm part of the PCA. Our jam is we plant churches. That's our, that's our thing. That's what we do. Uh, he said, but you know what? We need to be making disciples. We're not called. Matthew 28 does not call us to plant churches. It calls us to make disciples. And I guarantee you, if you're making disciples, you're going to have new churches. But if you're just out planting churches, you're not going to have any disciples to fill them with. And uh, on this, uh, at the same time, um, we had a, we had dinner with some friends and he asked the question, what he was legitimately asking the question, I think, well, what do we do now? What do we do now with all of this stuff going on with Christianity, um, you know, starting with, with starting with some Christian persecution beginning to happen in America? Um, you know, it's nothing new to the church. What do we do now? And, um, I, you know, I think those two th- questions, those two things go hand in hand. We make disciples. Mm-hmm. We need to be making a lot of disciples. We need to be learning a lot from our foreign brothers and sisters in much more restrictive companies or countries, um, learning from them and making, making disciples, um, which I think is a huge, you know, kind of just where I've landed. And I, you know, at small group last night, I was like, you know, kind of, I've been mulling over what, what does that look like in my own life, in my own circle? Um, one, am I being discipled? Should I be discipled? I think the answer is obviously yes. Um, what does that look like? Who would do that? Who would I, who would I meet with that? Um, I mean, I haven't done anything like that in quite a few years. You know, what does it look like for me to disciple somebody else? What are my relationship circles? Are there any new believers and or people that I can be sharing the gospel with? You know, um, I, I don't know. I don't have any answer to those questions. Um, and I had a thought, but all that rambling made it disappear. See, I've been I've been thinking the same thing, but because my sphere of influence typically falls within the walls of our house, I've been trying to think how do I and this should probably be a we, not I. How do we more we. deliberately disciple yeah, our kids. kids? Because in this COVID era, we can't consider it outsourced. And so the responsibility has always been with us you know look at look at joshua and deuteronomy parents teach your children parents disciple your children and um so the responsibility has always been with us but then there's there's been kind of this safe comfort ease of well we take our kids to sunday school uh when they're old enough they'll go to youth group and that that'll help that'll help or that'll do the job for us but none of that is happening right now and so I've been really struggling with the wrestling with the question of, mm-hmm. I feel like we're not doing enough. Like we don't really do, we haven't done family devotions in this you season. Know, I mean, no, we talk about, we should be, we talk about the things of the Lord. I'm looking forward to Advent because it's always with, in a finite period of time. Like I've got a Bible study ready to go. I've got. ABCs of Christmas ready to go. A stands for Advent. B is for Bethlehem. C is for Christmas. And then there's a little, a little description of why that's significant. I'm going to hang them on my on our wall on a garland, the whole ABCs of Christmas. And then I have a, a Bible study that I intend to do as well at the beginning of school. And so that's, I think, is important to be growing in the knowledge of Scripture because without having Scripture in our hearts, Scripture can't work on our hearts. Can I, I have a confession to make. I have no clue how to disciple my kids. You know, when you're when you're working with a with an adult, you're like, hey, let's go through this commentary on a book of the Bible. Let's go through this book on a topic. Let's study this passage together with a few different commentaries. But it always requires studying and reading. 
um, not necessarily the anecdotal walking in life. So, you know, sitting down and going, well, what, what happened to you this week that made you really question or not know how to respond? Or you felt like there was a conflict with your Christian faith or something like that. Um, I know I try like with the kids to frame most things within the context of the gospel, meaning what does Christ kind of call us to or ask us to do, or what does it mean to live a Christian life? Or in the midst of you like a do a better job situation. than I do of what's going on in your heart right now, and how do we turn right what's being selfish or idolatrous in our heart to Christ? But that doesn't necessarily point way. to like, are we telling our kids this is something we're dying for in this right now? Are we sh- are we showing them that? How are we teaching them that? You know, I don't, I don't know. I, know. Mean, I don't know. That's I mean, that's what I'm struggling with. I mean, right. our kids are young enough right now. I feel like we should go back and do the Jesus Storybook Bible with our younger ones. We yeah. read it so much, we kind of got tired oh, of it. But we haven't... So we were super consistent with that enough that... I think Titus even had pretty big portions of it memorized. Or at least he knew punchlines that were coming Well, throughout. we've taken a couple different yeah, tries at memorizing the children's catechism. And yeah, we've done a handful of different things, things like that, that have kind of but... fizzled out. We do a lot of scripture memory singing and a lot of that. Um, and I think that they've got more verses in their heads than they or I necessarily recognize because we do a lot of that. But and if you and believe it, scripture changes hearts, that's helpful. It's super important. Um, I'm not as deliberate about it as some moms I know in the scripture memorization or like catechism and things. But I also think scripture memorization just by itself is somewhat meaningless. Like you really need to know how to, well, well know how to use that sort of truth. Yeah. But as <laughs> if you look at like a classical definition of what's, what's important for, mm-hmm. um, in training a mind, you start with straight up memorization because that's what their brains are capable of doing. Their brains are little sponges. They can memorize yeah. a lot of things. And then once it's in there, then okay. you teach them how All to right. process it Makes later sense. on. So that's that's the classical model of education is very heavy on memorization when their brains are sponges. And then you process it later. My brain is but not a sponge. My brain is hard and dry and doesn't accept anything. I feel like <laughs> our older ones, are, especially Titus, is now getting out of sponge mode and yeah. into... Um, we need to learn to process with him. And anyway, I, I don't have any answers either. I'm just saying I feel I feel a great burden. So if anybody is actually still listening right now um, and you have this figured out, how do we disciple our children? Let us know and you can be a guest. Yeah. On our show and tell everybody the secret to training your children that... This is a faith worth dying for. Because I do believe that. And I also believe that that God would give me the grace to do what I needed to do in an extreme circumstance, which is happening around the world. Mm-hmm. In our every day. every day, Christians are killed because of their faith on at least two continents that I know of. Asia, various parts of Asia, and for sure Africa, Christians die because of their faith on a daily basis. So this isn't hypothetical. It feels very distant and hypothetical sometimes from our comfortable mm-hmm. American homes. But I believe that this, just like God gave grace to the martyrs throughout the church, throughout church history, and in present day, our brothers and sisters globally, he would give us the grace if we needed it, because he has worked his truth into our hearts. But I want to be more intentional about passing that on to the little offspring that I love dearly. That's good. And, you know, we've been talking a little bit about having guests on the show semi-regularly anyway, just to maybe change things up a little bit. Um, Or I actually just find it kind of interesting. Like, I, you know, this just kind of thing interests me. So if it interests you... Let us know if you don't like that D at all. And you're like, no, no, I just want you to all the time, every time. <laughs> then cool. You know, that's all right. 
Um, but if you, you know, if that's something that interests you or, or whatever, um, let us know. You can follow us at too busy to flush.com. We've got a couple social medias that we don't, um, post a whole lot of regularity to. You can email us, of course, um, our emails on one of those that might sometimes be the best. I should set up a dedicated too busy to flush email. So I'll do that this week. Um, I'll give you the address now. I'll set it up tomorrow or tonight. TB2F at PM.me. TB2F at PM.me. That's going to be our new our new email, and I'll put that up tonight. You guys can send us emails. Um, otherwise, you know, if you like this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you share it with your friends. Um, it makes us feel good and, you know, gives us a little bit bigger audience, especially if we have what we have to say is worthwhile and helpful. Um, it's helpful if other people have it. You can buy our swag on our website. We have the People Are Weird and Hard shirts and mugs available. So when your pastor has that really, really difficult time or you're married to your wife who's a counselor, uh, it's a perfect gift for their office, especially coming up at Christmas time. <laughs> <laughs> that said, thanks for listening. And hopefully we'll see you guys again next week. Yep, next week. Next week.